We record on Turrbal and Yagara country in Mianjin, Brisbane. Brisbane Festival recognises the integral role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples continue to play in the creative and artistic events and celebration spaces and pays respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Beginner's Call takes you backstage with Brisbane Festival and into the hearts, minds and rehearsal rooms of the casts, creators and critics behind Queensland's most anticipated event of the year. Today we are in the presence of greatness. My guests are artists and icons Eleganza and Joshua Taliani. As mother and father of Mianjin's original ballroom house, the House of Alexander, Ella and Joshua carry on the legacy of the queer black ballroom community and the courageous trans women of colour who have bravely challenged traditional gender roles and heteronormativity for more than 60 years. Their fierce family of gay, trans and gender non-conforming brothers and sisters will present two major works at this year's Brisbane Festival, and to give us an access all areas pass, welcome Ella and Joshua. Hi. Hello, hello. (laughs) Now, you both appear incredibly relaxed and calm for two people (laughs) preparing two major works as part of this year's Brisbane Festival. How are you feeling? Feeling very good. I mean, very blessed and fortunate to be able to produce the work to the rest of me engine, but at the same time, very stressed. Don't be fooled by this relaxed, calm energy. We are very, <laughs> very <laughs> tense inside. Our bodies have been through it in terms of rehearsals. The rehearsals. And, oh, um, it's been crazy. It's been, like Ella said, a very humbling experience, but the training is definitely catching up on us and the <laughs> rehearsal time, but don't be fooled by the faces. In <laughs> the relaxed, we're just... Taking it all in. Taking it all all in. in. And across the two works, the house and the Alexander Ball, how many artists are involved in those productions? Yeah, in the house, there is a cast of 26 altogether. And the Alexander Ball, to be honest, it's the whole Borum community of Australia and New Zealand. So it's... It's hard to number. It's hard to sort of guess because you've got so many people that are coming to compete and walk at the ball. Incredible. Mm. And for those unfamiliar with Borum, the House of Alexander is Mianjin's original ballroom house. But chat us through the origins of the ballroom community. Where does it come from? The ballroom originated around the 60s and it was basically a trans woman of colour that were in the queer pageants scene and they felt like they were being misjudged and they weren't being judged fairly. So basically what they did is they created their own scene, they created their own culture and basically out of that, Borum was created. Yeah, it came off the blood, sweat, and tears of trans women of color, and Borum has survived and thrived throughout the years. And we're just very fortunate that us as queer people of color living here in so-called Australia, that we're able to adopt the culture that has helped queer people of color over there navigate. And it has been our, I guess, a culture that we've been able to find ourselves and help with the wider queer PRC community with. And what was your individual first exposures to ballroom? Oh, I think mine was, I would say, because back in the day I was a hip-hop dancer before uh, anything, dancing under Ella. At that time, you kind of get to navigate through the different genres of dance style just in general. And I did see, uh, the first person I actually saw is Ella's father, which is the icon Javier Ninja. He'd done like a hands performance 
and it was his tens and it was the first time he kind of walked as a ninja and they trained for like mm-hmm. two years and he'd done this amazing thing. It was at the Latex Ball in 2006 yeah. and it was crazy. Like it was the most amazing thing. Like the way he was brushing his hands, there was glitter coming off of it. <laughs> he was just like doing all this fanning and all this glitter was just going everywhere. It was like, yeah. And as soon as I seen that, I was just kind of like, I would like to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think everyone would like to be yeah. like that. It was just an amazing thing to watch, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mine would have been back in 2000 and I believe it was six. There was a TV show called America's Best Dance Crew. And there was a dance crew called Vogue Evolution. And the first time I've ever seen a trans woman of color, her name was Laomi the Icon. And I was just like, one, the movement was just like, as a dancer as well, it really was like, what is this movement? I really want to, I would really love to explore that. I used to have hip-hop background as well. And I guess through hip-hop, we sort of dove into voguing as a foundation style within the hip-hop routine and the hip-hop world sort of thing. Because with Cruise, you had to touch on a minimum of three foundation styles of hip-hop. So we chose voguing to be one of the foundation styles. So, so that was sort of our introduction into, I guess, Vogue as the dance form. But I guess Borum culture, my introduction was through the founding mother of Australia, uh, which is Benji Ra. And so she used to invite me to judge some of the balls down in Gadigalan in Sydney. And so that was my introduction into understanding a bit more about the culture. The House of Alexander was founded in 2019. How did that come about in terms of the formalisation of this group of artists? Ella was staying in Gadigal Lands at the time and I was here. We both kind of, I guess, surfaced away from our old lifestyles in order to grow authentically into our own. And in doing so, after the many years of separation, it just kind of randomly happened. Ella messaged and was like, hey, like, how you been? What have you been up to? Stuff like that. And she's like, you know, I'm moving back to Brisbane and thinking of creating the ballroom scene there as well. And it was so funny just because like a few months before that, I was talking to a few other queer POCs throughout the club scene at the time, just talking about it and chucking it in the air. So I felt like the universe kind of hurt us. Yeah. It's kind of what initiated the whole plot from the start. Yeah. yeah. And and chat to us about the name of the group, because I know that it stems from Alexander the Great, who yeah. was the great king and military leader, which seems very far removed, yes. perhaps, from, yes. the, from the ballroom culture. But where did the namesake? For us, at first, it came up as a joke because Alexander was actually my dead name as a trans woman. The word Alexander was like the full name, right? So it was a joke that some of the girls were throwing shade my way. But then Alexander the Great, it was rumoured to be queer. And also, we've always loved Alexander. Alexander McQueen, a fashion icon. And so we've always, specifically back in Runway Dance Crew, back in 2010, 11, we used to always reference him. And so for us, it sort of all felt like, okay, well, Alexander the Great, Alexander McQueen, let's make that happen. And Alexander had a nice ring to it. So that's actually how it came about. There was no specific one main reason. It was a bunch of many reasons. And now it's iconic in itself. Only a few years later. Yeah, and it's crazy now that a lot of people are like, even to our children, they're like, are you an Alexander? Are you an Alexander? And so it's crazy the respect that it's gotten and the name that it's now carries throughout, not only in the Borum community, but the wider queer and the arts, It you know, like it's just crazy. Yeah. You touch on something there that, that is very specific and powerful and progressive to a ballroom house, and that is its family-like structure, whereby the house almost comes this surrogate family uh, yeah. for young queer POC kids. As mother and father of the House of Alexander, what does that entail, that role? For me, first, it's creating a safe space 
that to me is like the first foundation. It's family essence for me. Father and I, Josh and I, wanted to make sure that we were able to provide a family for a lot of these queer and or queer POC kids because the reality is people like us is that we're often kicked out of our homes, ostracized by our very own families. So for us, Borum was that one space where we could help, specifically for me, the younger trans women, of like how to help them to gain confidence, to walk out of the door. Something as simple as that. Something of like how to help them get employment, access to medical, medical in terms of like hormone replacement therapy, all these kinds of things. And then also creating a family where we could look out for one another. So even though Josh and I are mother and father, we also have some of our children who actually have brought in some of their siblings into their homes and now live together. So it's just crazy that we were just able to create a space and through that where as a family, everyone's able to help everyone else. And obviously, if Josh and I like to help the children, but they also in a lot of ways help us as well. The importance of ballroom for us is the fact that we're able to sometimes be what our parents couldn't and our families couldn't be for ourselves. We interject in their lives what their parents and families couldn't provide. And sometimes it's just the understanding of walking the similar lifestyle. Just having like a relatability in the sense of even just sitting down, listening, understanding their story, just because we may come from the same background or something. There could be like two queer First Nations in one room, but they could have a completely... They could have similarities in growing up. It could be different reactions in how they handled it. Mm-hmm. And so it's learning to navigate, like especially for me too. I'm wanting to create a safe space for everyone too, but I'm also wanting to engage a lot more with the First Nation queers and stuff like that. Especially living with the intergenerational traumas and stuff like that, it's hard to navigate because there's not many people representing themselves with the weight of that and kind of liberating that power. And that's just not translating through just queer First Nations, just for everyone, like trans women, all cultures and stuff like that. But it mainly really stems for that. And I think another point in conversation is there's so many complexities of being a queer person and of colour. So we're dealing with like, say for instance, in the one having to deal with being queer And then there's another level of being of colour because we deal with racism, we deal with a cultural value that have come from our homelands and the pressures of what it means to be Samoan or to be, and our family's trying to carry that culture and live that here. And there's just so many expectations and standards that are put onto us by our family and then also society. So it's like no matter where we go, the world isn't created for us to win. Mm. So it's just very hard. And so it's trying to teach our younger generations of ways how you can navigate that. And it's by leading by example. It's by being of example and trying to also figure it out together. Sometimes we don't have the answers and we've realized as parents, it's not about having the answers. It's sometimes it's just being there and to go, okay, well, I don't know. You don't know. Well, let's figure it out together. And sometimes it's just that hand to hold on. In the documentary that we did, Lecky, who's one of our sons, mentioned about holding your hand. And I think that action is very, very what this is. It's just holding each other's hands Mm. to say that you're not alone. And I think that's the power of being in a house specifically. The experience, you know, not only the queer experience, but as you've said, the POC queer experience is incredibly unique. You mentioned there the documentary, which is, of course, SBS's Curious Australia, for which the House of Alexander was a starring episode in the current season. Congratulations to you both. Thank you. It's a beautiful, beautiful documentary. There was a particular moment in there that really struck a chord for me, and it was something you just alluded to there, Ella, which is as 
queer POCs, we are the minority of the minority of the minority. I think we've come a long way as a society in terms of queer visibility and equality, broadly speaking, though it's very critical for us and for me in particular to acknowledge our privilege here in Australia. Have the rights and freedoms of queer POC progressed in the same way, would you say? I would say it's just like opportunities and representation. Like, I feel like that's the big part. It's like we want to see, in order for a community to feel uplifted and we need to see ourselves reflected. And I feel like that's the part that's lacking because I feel as though for the hetero, cis-heteronormative community or experience, they believe that if they've just got a bit of queer, it represents all of us. But the truth is, is that we've got queer POC, we've got queer Indigenous, we've got queer trans. Like there's just so many minorities amongst this, this label of being queer. And for myself being a queer trans woman of colour, I'm like, I don't see any of my community being represented ever on Australian media. And that's the hard part. It's just just like people in power let go of their power or their platforms or their privilege and hand it to someone who can be of impact to a community. And I think that's the change that needs to happen, not just for trans women, but for Indigenous folk as well. And I think that's why for us it's so important that we are talking as loud as possible, walking as proud as possible we can, because we know that there's communities that heavily rely on it because there's no one else out here doing it. And how do you speak to the nature of the house as a family? How do your children find their way to the house? It can be anywhere and anywhere, to be honest. Any given time, we could be performing at a place and someone will take notice and then might know somebody from inside the house and then start hanging out with us or come have lunch or something. And it just seems right, like the way the connection is between ourselves and this person, or maybe we'll see potential in somebody as well. But then again, we're not really limited to just the house. We try and just open it up to be a big family in general. So I guess a community. So in saying that, it really happens anywhere, to be honest. Mm. Yeah. And are there other houses that have been established here in Mianjin since the House of Alexander formed in 2019? Yes, so there's the House of Dynasty, and in Borum terminology, for those that don't belong to a house, they're called 007s. Which means like a free agent. Like a free agent, so like they don't belong to a house. So we have a very big Borum community, and as, I guess, the trailblazing pioneers of this city here, we're trying to also, like Josh said, not only worry about our own house, but try and nurture and empower other leaders so that they can start their own houses. Because we're very aware that... We can only do so much, the two of us. We can't take every single person in because at the end of the day, we can't do our job with our own children and be hands-on the way we want to if we've got 50 million kids. 50 million, yeah, because it's always just growing Although and growing. it looks like I've had 50 million kids. That ain't it. So I think for us, it's like one, we get a lot of people that approach us about wanting to join the House of Alexander. But I think for us, we're always looking at the bigger picture. It's like if we're looking for the Mianjin Borum community, empowering other people to step up into those leadership roles and so that they can also share the workload that we do with nurturing these young ones coming through. And it's also understanding that it's a lot of humble and selfless work, like in the sense of 
when we look for these certain people who would like to be potential leaders and, and trailblazers in this type of community, it's about looking for those people that can really just do a lot without asking for anything back or wanting anything back. Because there's a lot, a lot of... Yeah, I think it would be more selfless. It's the purpose is all about community and not yeah. self-serving. You're not doing this for yourself. Because the essence of Borum is really the act of service to the next generation, to everything that you know and you pass it on to the next one. Because that's the power of, for us, being POC, a lot of our traditions and customs wasn't put down in writing. It's through word of song and word of mouth. So that's one way we like to just keep the culture alive through Borum. And you mentioned, you know, it is an incredibly selfless task and community. And in your role as mother and father of the House of Alexander in particular, it's a huge responsibility to carry. What is it that drives you to keep going? Without getting emotional, for me, it's the little wins. It's like seeing your daughter get a job. Mm. It's seeing your daughter go on a date uh-huh. and she comes back and she calls you. And it's like, it was the best thing ever. Like, I got no eyes of judgment. Like, I didn't get caught this word, this word, this word. It's just she got seen for just being herself. And for us as parents, specifically me as a mother, that to me is like the win. That to me is the trophy. That's what fills me up to want to keep going. Just the topic of love itself for trans women, you know, we're being fetishized, we're just always loved in the dark, objectifying, all so many things. So I think as a parent, those little wins are like our moments of like, okay, Let's keep going. We're making an impact on these young ones and helping them become confident and loving themselves in Mm. their own skin. Absolutely agree. I would echo that and say just seeing them have more direction and just waking up in the morning and seeing them just go out and do stuff, things that usually would just get them down because sometimes, you know, I've learned a lot from my daughters and from Ella as well um, of just having to wake up every day and look at yourself and not be happy and, and these types of things to know that, with these experiences in this community that we create, they do get up and they're starting to love themselves a whole lot more. They're starting to believe in themselves a whole lot more. And that's why Ella is such an amazing mother. And that's why she gets so emotional because there is so much heart in it. And like, I'm going to try not to get emotional too. But there is like so much heart that she like puts into it. And just to see their growth and just the self-love that just slowly creeps up more and more every day. And if it does come down, we're right here to pick it back up kind of thing. And yeah. It's all about the wins. I think that the most extraordinary thing is that anybody who has seen your work, and I feel like work is the wrong word for it, but anybody who has been in the company of the House of Alexander experiences this ferociousness and fight and fierceness that it's very interesting to kind of understand more what's behind all of that. I, I think... You know, your work is so deeply rooted in self-expression and self-love and and self-empowerment, which is incredibly complex territory and something that for all of us is a journey more so than a destination. Are you comfortable sharing a little bit about your personal journeys towards that sense of self-empowerment and self-love? Yeah, I think for me, growing up, Knowing that I was different was always hard to sort of, you know, we didn't have language like back then, like POC, and we didn't have language. I didn't know the language or the term trans. My only understanding of a queer identity was the word fafafine, which is, it's a Samoan term for like the third gender. And being called that at a young age, I used to hate that because 
I just knew that it wasn't right because of religion and all these pressures of just being what it means to be a Samoan Maori as well. I think the self-love for me came from, I have a very strong family of women. Never really had strong male figures to look up to growing up. And I feel as though that matriarchal kind of presence just really helped me connect with that maternal kind of love. And so me stepping into myself and coming into my truth as a trans woman, it only felt right to want to give that back, if that makes sense. And so like all the love that I got from my mom and all her sisters and all the women that were like second mothers to me, I've learned so much from them. And because obviously as a trans woman, I couldn't have my own kids. So for me, it was just like, how could I give back in ways that I would have wanted to? And so I think Borum is a way and being a mother in Borum has been just my way of just pouring that out through community into specifically our house. But it's been a very hard journey. Like I'm a little bit of background context. I after dance, because I used to be in a dance crew, I moved to Gadigal Lands, lived there for about six years, and I was focusing on just on my transition. And I was going through stages where I didn't want to identify as trans anymore. I wanted nothing to do with the queer community. I just wanted to be a woman. And I didn't want to associate myself to my past anymore. And that's a journey a lot of trans women go through. And I underwent gender reassignment surgery. And it wasn't until I went through that. It was after having that surgery, there was like a change in me that wanted to like own my queerness. And for, for the longest time, I was trying to run away from my queerness and become just a woman because I felt the pressures of like employment. And at the time I was playing volleyball at a national stand, a national league competitive level. And I felt the pressures of like, if I was to be open with my transness, I would never get anywhere in life. So I felt the need to conform. And it wasn't until I had that gender reassignment that there was just this, for some, I don't know what it was, that there was a switch in me that was like, no, I can still be a woman and still own my queerness. And my genitalia doesn't define who I am. That doesn't define my womanhood. I can be a woman and I can be queer and I can be trans because it's all of me. And so once I understood that concept, it was just like, move back here and just F it up, like mm-hmm. just be most authentically myself, unapologetically. That's where I've gotten to. So that's a bit of where my journey has led to and how it's sort of like taken my resilience and turned it into this ammunition to just to fight. Mm. Yeah. I think there's so many incredible things in that story, but <laughs> the, mostly for me is that you played uh, volleyball at an elite level yeah. because having tried to play volleyball myself, I just think hats off to you. That's oh, incredible. You. Her spikes are deadly. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Josh? What about your personal journey? I feel like mine's a lot shorter. To be honest, just to keep it simple, I just I tried playing it straight and I did everything by the book of just staying as undercover as I could. I guess growing up with the family that I had, I wasn't necessarily around my Indigenous family, but more of my Italian side. Yeah, they weren't very open to it. They would always drop the words like, poor fat. Like, am I allowed to say that? Yeah, poof, like faggot or like, oh, look at them too, like fucking da-da-da-da-da. So like kind of hearing all of that, I was like, I'm not doing anything possible and almost like created like this weird like tight wall of just being so straightforward and nothing else of emotion, I guess. But then it wasn't until I got more into dancing and stuff and 
I got to feel my feminine side a whole lot more, which I always knew was there, but I was just, like I said, playing it straight. But it wasn't until I come out, I had to really find myself and where I wanted to go and where I was comfortable because when you think of like people coming out, they automatically go to being like, oh my God, yeah, it's so crazy. Like, like you know what I mean? And that wasn't really me. And I guess I was trying to navigate and find myself in the fact that I'm just an everyday kind of guy besides my performing side which is allowed to be out there. But just in the everyday kind of context, like if I'm around my mates or something like that, I'm very just chilled, like chilled guy. And so trying to find that was kind of hard because everyone around me was so flamboyant and wearing makeup or skirts or, or doing something like that. So I think for me, I ended up just being like, well, you know what, if I can't find it, I'm just going to be it. And if I find people along the way that are exactly like me, great. I kind of switched myself to accept it after not seeing myself and anyone else. And, and found a home within the ballroom community. Absolutely. I always say this, and Ella's heard me say it so many times, but I always say, like, you know, within our, our cultural backgrounds, you experience, like, homophobia, and then in the queer community, you experience racism. So it's like, where do you go? These two, like, ostracised communities and stuff like that who are fighting for equality in their own rights but are still not with it. Mm. And so, yeah, that's where ballroom is. And that's the spearhead of everything in that safe space. That's why it's so sacred. It's almost just it's like culture. It it's, has a sacredness to it. That's why it's so important to uphold that family essence and keep the knowledge and the reasons why it it, it should go. Yeah. Mm, I think that was one of the most extraordinary things that I learned in learning more about ballroom culture was that it was it was born out of the queer community ostracising and mm-hmm. excluding. Yeah their own and and I feel like that is something that still does plague many communities but especially the queer community where there is this inter fighting or there seems to be these rules around who is allowed in and who's allowed to it's identify bullshit. with their queerness and yeah and cuz like even referring back to when um Crystal Avesia back in the 60s when you know the trans women would participate in the art form of drag back then they had to paint themselves predominantly white to even be considered into these pageants and stuff like that, you know what I mean? So it's like, no wonder why there was such a an outburst of a resistance amongst this type of oppression. Like, it's been going on since back then. Like, it's just ridiculous to listen to, really. Mm. It's interesting that a number of iconic ballroom hallmarks and references have become popularised by mainstream culture. Don't get us started. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm about to get you started. Uh, the, the, the most obvious is, of course, voguing, but even the use of phrasing, throwing shade, let's have a kiki. Death drop, of, even though it's called a dip. Death drop. When the queer experience has been devalued and erased by so many for so long, do you think this kind of appropriation is more helpful or harmful to the cause? I think it's definitely harmful to the cause because it's made born community and it's made queer people of colour feel like everyone has a right to just take from us and without even acknowledging where they get their references or where they take from. And I think that's the hard part is that it's definitely more harmful and it's gotten to a point where we're just born as a community worldwide we're just over it now we're just we're starting to speak up we're starting to call people out on call people out on it so it's just really hard but it's gotten to a point where like it's progressed so far in modern pop culture it's just like where do we start with like the words like throwing shade I hear my sister's friends like everyone talks like oh she's so shady and it's just like telling 
Like, like, do you know where that word comes from? It's just mind-blowing. And also within the queer community, drag culture in itself and RuPaul's Drag Race, like, they are a big influence in as to how they've taken from ballroom as well. The category is that terminology and that language all stemmed from ballroom, tends across the board, came from ballroom. Like, it's just so sad that I feel as though in a platform like RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, as successful as it is, there isn't nowhere near enough acknowledgement to the origins of everything that they are and everything that they've somewhat have capitalized on a community of trans women. And yet, do you see one trans woman of color represented at all on that TV show? No. And if anything, there was a moment in that series where apparently RuPaul wasn't accepting trans Trans women applicants as drags, when the reality is, if you actually look back, the term drag was actually trans women first before it was traditionally now known as gay men impersonating women. It was the trans women as the drags. And it's just crazy how through the evolution of not just drag race, but drag culture, it's just washed out all the work of the trans women and their contributions to the start of this culture. And the ownership too. The ownership. It's just crazy because RuPaul, even back in the day, used to hang out with the pioneers of the ballroom scene. And you know, Michelle Visage too was even in a house. and She was in a house. Used to do Old Way and, and, and stuff like that. And the fact that they were around that time where it was so authentic and so what it was about, um, yeah, it's just a shame that it's not given back. And going back to like all the queens being like, yeah, Swark, Slay, da-da-da-da. They're all about that, but they're not all about helping fight for POC spaces and supporting or doing anything like that. So it's just like... It's just another thing where they're just taken again. trans, because at the end of the day, who were the ones that fought for the gay rights in the beginning? Yeah. Marsha P. Johnson, what is she? She's a trans woman of colour, a trans Latinx woman. And the fact that it's just so hard, they've been at the forefront of so much change and equality, but yet their existence and their labour and their work and their contribution to what is today now seen as just, for a lot of people, have taken for granted. It's just been just wiped out. And that's the hard part for specifically for that conversation around that. It's just, it's just so sad. You know, so I think that there needs to be like people like RuPaul and, and those high platforms, like acknowledging, you know, just like we acknowledge, you know, the traditional owners, acknowledge the traditional owners of the culture. That to me is just like, that's just what's right. Mm. Yeah. Gosh, I feel like we've got a whole nother episode down there. <laughs> Down that garden path, don't we? Uh, you did warn me, Josh, didn't you? Yes. No, I think it, I think it's so fascinating. And as you, as you say, there is this moment where things become it's exciting initially when something that was born out of such sacrifice and personal grievance for a community becomes popular. It is exciting that it almost accepted until it gets to a point where it's forgotten its origins yes. and where it's come from and why that is incredible. Yeah. And it is a very fine line. Mm. On a much lighter note, <laughs> <laughs> you've got two incredibly special experiences on offer as part of this year's Prism Festival. Let's start with The House, which receives its world premiere at Southbank Piazza. What can audiences expect from a night at the house. They can expect a full journey experience going through 
the experiences of queer POC. It's showcasing more than what the house is known for. It comes from not just with ballroom terms, but our cultures, our experiences, our vulnerability, our essence, and our histories, if you wanted to chuck on that. Yeah, I think it's a great dynamic and it's a very intimate experience of the harsh realities also of what it means to be a queer person of colour. There's a lot of very deep messages that we've purposefully wanted to put out there as well. But also you're going to get the glitz, the glam, the fashion, <laughs> the you're going to gag. You're going to get all of it. So there's a great dynamic to the show. And I feel as though there is nothing like the show that's ever put out there in the city. And I think this is one of many. And I definitely feel like, yeah, if you're looking for something new and extravagant, if you're looking for a show where you're going to laugh, you're going to cry, you wish you were a part of, all those kinds of emotions, this, this show is, is definitely one. going to be the one. And what about closing night of Brisbane Festival, uh, which sees the triumphant return of the Alexander Ball at the Tivoli? It's a four-hour extravaganza celebrating what it means to be unapologetically queer. What does it entail? It entails 12 categories that are just going to really show you what a ballroom experience entails. We've got categories like Sex Siren that celebrate the essence of sex, originally from the sex workers. We've got categories like Runway, which is all about your catwalk. I mean, how good your walk is. I mean, you've got Best Dress. We've got The Voguing. We've got Realness. Commentating versus commentating. So all the raka ka 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 You're going to see all of them battle it out for the trophies. The cash prizes are also so very heavy. We've got a total grand prize pool money of $8,000 and that's all been sponsored. So we're very thankful to all the sponsors. Um, if you want to check them out, it's on our house Instagram page. We have also got the most iconic judging panel in terms of Australian New Zealand balls that has ever been done. We have a panel of nine judges, four New Zealand mothers and five Australian parents, mothers and fathers. And we have the ballroom houses coming from Nam, Melbourne, Gadigal, Sydney, Ponake, Wellington, and Tamaki, Auckland, Mianjin, and also Baller in Perth. So it's ridiculous. This ball is going to be incredible because last year, because of the COVID restrictions, we were only, the borders were closed. So we reached a capacity of 800 people. This year we have the capacity of 1,500 and our borders are obviously open. So it's going to be ridiculous. So if you don't have your tickets, I suggest you get them now. now. <laughs> because if you save them for a couple of days, they're going to be hella expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and don't say we didn't warn you. <laughs> I am exhausted just hearing about it. I can only imagine how the two of you are feeling at the moment. Our guests today have have been Eleganza and Joshua Taliani, mother and father of the House of Alexander. It has been an absolute pleasure and a joy to have you both here to join us. Thank you so, Thank much, you so for much for having, having us. Let's shot. Brisbane Festival returns to fill the city with three weeks of wonder, delight, queer POC excellence and celebration from the 2nd to the 24th of September. For information and tickets, visit brisbanefestival.com.au. Brisbane Festival.